0: Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So last, last week, our last conversation was uh, we'll called a, a book summary, and it was a, Don't Think of an Elephant. Uh, you you kind of left something off there at the end, talking about the the three basic frames of Christian history and how, how that actually is, is pretty influential on Christians today and would be helpful. Um, so we're going to dig into that. Um, for those who did not catch that, I think it's... Worth a listen, but it's a book by George Lakoff, and it, and it really emphasizes how how people think in frames and the power of frames. Um, and so that led us down this uh, this path about what these these three basic frames are. So we're gonna pick up there today, kind of where we left off. Um, not not really a book summary anymore, uh, but we're really digging into some of the the meat that I think has been meaningful to Mike as this book is, uh, you know, leads that frame the importance of frames. So, Mike, why don't we pick up there? Um, the, yeah, the three basic frames of, of history, Christian history, I believe. Um, and and what are they? And why is that? Why is that meaningful?
1: Yeah, that, great. So again, um, hey, you three listeners, listen up. <laughs> I always like that phrase, "listen up." Which way have been listening before? <laughs> anyway, yeah, th- we thought this would be uh, helpful because. Uh, the power of frames, uh, or rather, we, we, we cannot think without a frame. And, and that includes, for Christians, how they understand history, uh, history of the church, for example. And it dawned on me, uh, kind of leapt off the page as I've been reading um, the book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. That he introduces a second frame for church history that came along and then i'm going to suggest there's actually been a third one that's about 200 years old so i'm going to suggest there's three basic phrases i'm not going to make an argument that one frame is correct obviously i feel like one is better than the other and at least i i want you to be aware that especially here we're just talking about here in america we tend to look at church history three different ways through one of three different frames and the simplest way to get into this is to i'll ask pat pat so have you ever heard of the middle ages i have you have and what does what is it what does the middle ages mean
0: (laughs) you know it's what um, are they what's
1: a, what's their that's a frame by the way it's a frame of
0: time sure well in in i always think of uh, medieval time is that is that synonymous well i'm sure it is it has
1: some overlap but i'm sure the average listener says well you just, you just defined a term i'm unfamiliar with with a term that i'm unfamiliar with
0: oh <laughs> <laughs> well, i only I, when i think of middle ages i think of the horses the the Knights, the Friars, the Kings, um, you know, the period in time in which that was the, the common area, which I actually don't know, uh, Fair date good. wise what it is, but yeah. yeah.
1: So again, and, um, some of you history buffs we're painting with a rather broad brush, just to try to keep things as simple as possible. Uh, the Medi- the, uh, middle ages roughly are synonymous with the medieval world and if you, for sake of simplicity we'll say roughly from oh the 500s up until the 1500s about a thousand year span so it's the medieval or uh, who came up with the phrase middle ages
0: that i don't know
1: there's a fascinating thing it was the protestants
0: Which uh, yeah, what's what's the history of that?
1: Yeah, well, first you ask yourself, Protestants. What does that mean? When did when was the word
0: Protestant first coined? I think I think that's with, uh, I don't know, first coined. It typically refers to the Martin Luther and John Calvin, the reformers, but um, I don't know. I'm I'm guessing that's around when the same
1: yeah term was coined so remember here the medieval world was roughly for late 400s 500s to 1500 Then after the 1500 war, after the 50 after 1500 we'll say roughly 1517 luther's followers coined the phrase protesters who were they protesting against the catholic church Yeah, Catholic Church. And Luther, though, initially his followers were called uh, evangelicals. And they were citing Ignatius and Irenaeus and the rest who were using that term. Evangelical meant someone who trusted in the apostolic teachings. And so he was trying to make the case that they were returning to the apostolic teachings of the first several centuries. the reason that's uh, important, by when we say the first several centuries, uh, Pat, let's say you came to Christ in the year 250. Uh, What were you reading concerning uh, what was in the Bible? Was there a Bible?
0: Uh, No. No, I mean, you had Old Testament writings. Mm -hmm. Um, You had letters from Paul, but those were often read in in a, a service or a mass. There was no personal Bible.
1: That's so you the average believer might have been introduced to Matthew's gospel, read somewhere, might have heard of one or two letters from Paul, and these would have been circulating loose as individual works. So for over 300 years, uh, we have no New Testament. And so what they're referring to in the apostolic teachings was the idea that there was oral and some written, which were authoritative. An apostle is someone who could trace their lineage back to Christ and the original 12 uh, disciples who became apostles. So let me give you the three frames here because I think we're going to lose everyone if we don't lay out the three frames and then go from there. The first frame, which is essentially held by two-thirds of the worldwide church, catholic and apostolic is you have the early church and just say 33 to 500. you have after that the medieval world what can also be called christendom from 500 to believe it or not the present and then you have where we live today what's often called the end of Christendom, not Christianity, but Christendom. So that's one view of the world. And the reason this is important is that when we say Christendom in 1056, you had a split between the East and West of the Orthodox and Catholic traditions. But they would hold that what the church is doing now is breathing with one lung. East and West, and the hope is for the schism to be rehealed. But it hasn't been. It hasn't been brought back together. And so you have one in the Catholic world, what to say, or if you have Orthodox friends, the view would be there was the early church, and then as a continuation of that after the 500s, you have Christendom or the medieval world. The medieval world goes through 1500, but Christendom which is also in the medieval world, keeps on going until the present day, which you have a lot of writers saying, Christendom is no dead. Not Christianity, the Christendom. Mm-hmm. You also have a reformed view, which became the Protestant reformed view. And it says we had the early church up until Constantine, about 400s. After that, we have the Middle Ages, from 500 to the Reformation, 1500s. The Middle Ages are a complete thumbs down, would be a way to put it. It is nothing but corruption by popes and papal decrees.
0: And Mike, you said those same time time spans. 33 to 500 AD. Did I hear that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you're you're trying to put these together in your mind, 33, we'll just say, yeah, 33 to 500, both view early church, Mm. both give it thumbs up. In the Catholic world begins the Western Christendom, which goes to today. That's 1500 years of which the first thousand years is the medieval world. Mm. Inside Christendom, and the medieval world you have ups and downs for every corrupt pope you have reforms and renewals for the next four or five popes but it's definitely an up and down
0: Mm.
1: but a general growth in christendom which is the view that christianity ought to extend into every sphere of life it's called the medieval world protestants reframe those first thousand years, as the Middle Ages, the middle between what?
0: Hmm, it's hmm. funny.
1: Between what? Between what two ages?
0: Well, I, th- I think between the early church and uh, the renewal of the early church, right? In yeah, that's Rome. right.
1: That's right. The renewal of the early church, which begins with the reformers which you can trace it all the way back to Luther. So you see I have a radically different view of church history right there. And so if you were to think of these three epochs, and I think the third one I'm going to do is all, they all have three epochs. First, first two, Catholic and Protestant reform. That's important here because we're going to introduce a third, a second reform, I mean a second Protestant view, not trying to confuse you. you need to pull out a piece of paper, go ahead and draw a straight line. 33 to 500. The Catholic slash Orthodox view is early church, good. Um, Then you have 500 to the present, what's called Christendom, which includes the medieval world, 500 to 1500, which has ups and downs, but weighs out generally as good. And then you have calls today in these traditions such as Paul Kingsnorth, who is Orthodox, who is saying that the last 500 years have so subverted even the Catholic and Orthodox tradition that we must return to the first 500 years. The Protestant reform view is the early church, 33 to 500, good. Middle Ages, they introduce. Now the medieval world, Middle Ages. 500 to 1,500, basically corrupt. The renewal of the first 500 years begins with the Reformation, the last 500 years. So one view has basically early church, 1,500 years then of medieval world, and that med- medieval world, I mean, yes, Christendom is kaput. It's, it's been wiped out by the Enlightenment. Or really crippled. In the Protestant Reform view, you have the early church, you have the Middle Ages, which are basically corrupt. The renewal and reformation begins of the early church with Luther and then the reformers. Hence, even when there's a recognition the Enlightenment has done great damage to this, the call is to return. The early church, but not the church fathers, and certainly not anything that happened in the medieval world. And so, you can even see in the architecture of uh, Protestant reform. Now, there's a third group that begins in the 1800s or late 1790s, is what it's called. It's the Protestant Evangelical. Now, this one is one i've come out of and it's gotta pay careful attention to what happens here early church i just draw a question mark the reason i do that is in protestant evangelical world there's a general ignorance of anything that happened after acts 28. hence in the view of the protestant evangelical the church today is acts 29. Hmm. and so medieval world question mark just i don't know middle ages mm, don't know much about knights horses armor crosses on the shields Reformation Mm, heard about it, kind of. But the seminary I went to, for example, Dallas Seminary, looked at the Reformation as not good. Uh, Well, then, what do you go back to? Acts, Book of Acts. Ah, so what we're doing is the Book of Acts. Yes, we're Acts twenty-nine. Three very different frames.
0: Yeah, that, that's, I'm, I, def, I definitely resonate with frame number three. That's my background as well. Um, what is is very intriguing here with frames one and two, the difference I'm, I'm seeing, correct me if my understanding is, is wrong here, is that for frame one, which you mentioned was, was more the Catholic apostolic frame, looking at the medieval era as good and ups and downs. So the good and the bad, but when we think about problems today, we're pointing back to, hey, there are some things in that time we probably should get back to, and some things we should still acknowledge and shed, um, but, but the difference is where we're pointing back in history as examples of what the church has done well. And so in the second, which you mentioned was the Reformed, the second frame where there's nothing in the middle ages that we're pointing back to everything's the early church to say we actually need to go back to the early church is that is that correct
1: yes that's why uh, for example we were watching a little rick steves last night in england um, He's visiting these churches and of course when uh, henry the eighth i think it's 13 years after luther uh, ignite set off this uh, explosion of uh, individual interpretation of scripture uh henry uh, decides well, then I'm going to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, and we're going to create our own church, Church of England. And the first thing they do is strip away most of the artwork from because all the churches in England are Roman Catholic, and that's why you'll go in. That's why you'll visit if you visit a church. They're beautiful. Well, most they were almost entirely built by the Catholic Church, and they have uh, a lot of their uh, art has been removed. And here's a, here's a, so if that helps, um, you'll notice um, in the Protestant Reformed, and I'm not, again, saying one's better than the other, I'm just saying the power of the frame. Because in the Protestant Reformed, there is, when the call says, going back to the early church, there is a, uh, Luther and others had a very selective view of the early church so the re- reason that the reformers said always reforming was their motto is when luther decides to translate the new testament into uh, german uh he he uh, throws out first peter second peter you can see why um peter he uh, ex- he throws out he uh, tosses book of hebrews from the new testament canon and the uh, book of James. He also, uh, for the first time and the at best I can tell, went back to the Hebrew Old Testament because when the uh, Jews translated the, what well, they wouldn't call the Old Testament, but their scriptures into Greek, with the Septu- Septuagint, they had, a, let me get the number right here. I think it's like 33 or 34 books. And Luther chopped out uh, six or seven of them. And that's why you have today what's called a, there's a Catholic Bible that they say has more books called the Apocrypha. And Protestants have fewer. Well, that's actually the, the victory of frames because there's another way to say it, is that the, uh, was held for 1,500 years as being the scriptures, Uh, Luther chopped it down. He excised quite a number of books. Now, subsequent reformers felt he went too far, and they brought back in Peter and Hebrews and things like that. But the point is, you have a selective view of uh, even scripture. In my mind, what's even more important is a selective view of what constitutes a church or the church. And here's where, in my view, uh, also uh, what constitutes a church. So, that like, for example, the church that you go to, the church where, and really, yeah, we'll keep it that simple. So, when you imagine the church, and you were to define what's a Bible believing church. How would you define it pat
0: <laughs> what a question
1: <laughs> well i do let I me mean, just give it to myself because people don't think much about this but then when they say we're going to church sure. They obviously have something in their mind
0: what well, yeah. constitutes a church well again coming i mean coming from the protestant world the the church is is a place where you go and you hear and learn about scriptures especially if it's a bible believing church then i expect to go and sit and hear a sermon Exegesis on the on Scripture on on our Bible.
1: Good, yeah, that's
0: exactly I mean. When I went to South seminary, the big
1: seal was preach the word. That was the on the uh, seal of the uh, school that I attended. They really taught us well, how you know, preach the word. Okay, so here's what I mean by the first 500 years. So in the tradition that I that I was uh, saved in, the Protestant evangelical. That's exactly how we would imagine. In the reformed view, there's a few more things that are generally added in and that's why people sometimes don't like is they say, Oh, you got to do this and that. And they would imagine that that's what, I mean, and they also have more formal, um, uh, structure organization because of the institutes that Calvin wrote. So you have session elders so on and so forth. But uh, let me take you back to uh, the church fathers. There's some interesting things. Here's Ignatius. Now, Ignatius, I'll probably get it wrong, but was discipled by, um, and I can't remember who, but but who, who was then had been discipled by the writer John. So this was what, he was in a line of apostles. So he was considered one of the church fathers, or what would later come to know in the creed, one holy catholic apostolic church here's ignatius first century. this is now in the uh, ignatius lived so between 108 and 140 before he was martyred so this is early in the second century 108 we're not even 100 years away from jesus
0: which real quick yeah. the importance yeah. of the 100 years is generationally yes you know, this is this is maybe one maybe that's two right? but maybe one generation removed i mean that's like that's right hearing from your grandparents you know your grandfather yeah, people was yeah, that's a right yeah
1: you have people walking around say um uh, i listened to the writer john
0: yeah
1: i knew the i knew the writer john and when he when the canon is formed canon, words, canon word canon where canon means list so when they go up with the list by the 300s this is the bible the new testament john was in it so here's someone who knew john and listen to how he defines the church. You must all follow the lead of the bishop as Jesus Christ followed that of the Father. Follow the presbytery as you were the apostles. Reverence the deacons as you were God's own commandment. Let no one do anything touching the church apart from the bishop. Where the bishop appears, there let the people be, just as where Jesus Christ is, there's the Catholic Church. This, by the way, is the first recorded use of the term the Catholic Church, although Ignatius seems to employ it here as an expression already familiar to his readers, which would fit with what, what Tertullian would write a few years later. And thus, the name Catholic Ekklesia, Greek meaning Catholic Church, is used to mean the original church known everywhere. And that original church is what Theophorus would write in the same era. He's always recognizable as the one that clings inseparably to a bishop appointed by an apostle.
0: Yeah, certainly a different frame than coming together (laughs) collectively and and hearing about scripture.
1: No. That's not the distinction.
0: Well, well, sorry, what I mean by collectively in particular is collective leadership, a group of people sitting in a a Sunday, you know, in terms of church structure. But what, what distinction are you pointing to?
1: Authority, a magisterium, a collective body of wisdom that's handed down through the apostles that defines what is the church which is eventually solidified in a creed, both Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed 325, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. The reason you don't hear that recited in, say, Protestant Evangelicals, first of all, the frame that i grew up in when we'd say one of course we're all one we're one in jesus catholic um oh i see now that's little c meaning universal yep on holy well holy yes holy because of jesus is holy catholic yes universal apostolic um yeah the apostles i was taught at seminary that age came to a close in 95 a.d there were no more apostles after that. So the frame, of course, we hardly recited the creed. One holy Catholic apostolic is not how the church fathers understood one holy Catholic apostolic church. Victor Tullian in the third century would write that the church extending from all the way up, he even cites Germany, uh, up into probably the British Isles, the Mediterranean, Africa, Asia, all holds to, and he capitalizes the tradition, the tradition and the tradition was what defined a church was a body that clings inseparably to use this language. To a bishop, appointed by an apostle, who appoints a priest. And therefore, in that succession, you have the church, the bride of Christ, which is a universal expression. That's what he means, by the way, when he writes. If you think I'm making an argument for, I'm not. What I'm doing primarily here is this. You have one frame that's held by two-thirds of the worldwide church. By the way, in that tradition, you also have a second big distinction, Pat, not only authority, but second, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so in the the two-thirds of the worldwide church, I would call that Catholic and the Orthodox traditions, you have the real presence of Christ in The bread and wine. That is, there's actually a change in the substance through the priest. In the Protestant Reformed, you do not have that. You have something maybe similar, but it is not the real presence of Christ. And in the uh, Protestant Evangelical, it's merely symbolic there is no presence. Hence, whatever's left over in the big trade that's sent around is pitched in the trash can. The frame is what makes the difference. Because in the frame, as I was in most of my Christian life, the frame is we're Acts 29. So what happened in the first couple centuries? I really have no idea. What happened in the medieval, in medieval world? Oh, gosh. Huge amount of money spent on churches and art and stained glass and extravagant, extravagant corruption. And uh, so what are you doing today? We are reviving the original church you see in the book of Acts, where they gather for the communal meal, they hear the word, they pray. And so where's the church? It's wherever Christians gather. In the two thirds of the worldwide church, they would say, no. In fact, the church fathers make no distinction between the invisible and the visible church. Christians like to often say, you know, I'm part of the invisible church. I'm not a member of any one church. I'm part of the invisible church. The church fathers would scratch their head and say, that's impossible if you're part of the church the church has these distinctions and that's what constitutes the universal church and again the word universal is catholic that irritates a lot of listeners probably because they go "Uh, i don't like that word catholic i get it i I didn't for a long time but you can see by the frame the frame that Protestant evangelicals have, and by the way, the reason that a lot of people don't like the term Catholic is uh, grotesque um, scandals that have undermined the moral authority of the Catholic Church over the last 50 years. Sure. I get it. Hence, that is why in the uh, 1970s Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who was that, did you know he won an Emmy for his, uh, he's one of the first like YouTube preachers He's a, you know he was a priest yeah. in new york city but powerful talk about a bygone era can you imagine a priest today winning a nami an and uh but he said uh in the 1970s he said my friends western christendom is dead not christianity not the church but we 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 cannot revive this thing this thing cannot be reformed because this, this westernized view that has gutted Christians of a profound understanding of the mystical presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which was considered, and it still is to this day, for 2,000 years, going back to the Church Fathers, the source and summit of Christian life and formation. You can go to some churches and they don't have communion, but once a month. Now, the reason that partly why this is, uh, these frames matter is you do have Christians who are saying the church is in exile and they're of, of all stripes. The trick is, what do you do about that? You see, for some of my friends, recognizing the church, they're talking about American Christianity is in exile. We'd say, well, we have to go back to the book of Acts because we're Acts 29. In the Reformed tradition, it would be to go back to the early church, but not all that the church fathers wrote, particularly this understanding of the Eucharist. And in the Catholic Circles, there would be a call to go back to the early church, but back to what it was in its entirety in the first several centuries, including what's called a magisterium. You know what that means? I do not. It means a, a collective assembly that created what Tertullian would call the tradition. The tradition is. Here's how we understand these passages. Here's what's been uncovered over the centuries. Now, Remember when Apostle Paul said, my work is to uncover the hidden meanings in uh, Scripture. And we see that all through the Old Testament that God hides these things because they're too brilliant to come straight at us. And there's been this sense of... uh, uh, these have slowly over the centuries been uncovered. And uh, one of on the first, obviously, was the real presence of Christ, which seems to be in some quarters fairly straightforward because Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And second, if, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't do anything. And the reason that um, Catholic and orthodox traditions are calling for the end of Western Christendom, his uh, latest stat, I saw 68% of Catholics today do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So this isn't a Protestant problem. This is a Western Christianity that has gutted Catholic, Protestant, and Evangelical, all three. But I did notice, and listeners, um, listen, listen I, I admire Tim Keller to the max, so to say, as my kids would say. And uh, hmm. I, I met him twice. I had the highest regard for him. And as he knew he was dying from cancer, um, I made it a point to, the uh, first time around, to send him an email just to say, praying for you, because I was. I thought he made important contributions. And the second time around, this one appeared to be the one that would be fatal. And he wrote voluminously on the renewal of the church. And I actually waded through it because they are very comprehensive. And I gave him high marks for that. But I think we touched on it. One was he said, the Protestant world has got to develop the equivalent of what's called Catholic social teaching, which is very comprehensive about how do we make our way in a, the world in which we live. To which some people read and said well rather than having to come up with a protestant one why not just adopt catholic social teaching but you can see why the frame makes you go no we can't do that right because then we would adopt things second if you read through all the wrote, he only makes at best a passing comment that once we bring renewal we bring the catholic church along it's as if There are Catholics, but they really have very little to contribute to the renewal of Christianity in America. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. But it makes sense inside a frame of of, uh, we understand what the church was doing for the first four or five hundred years. Constantine converting and then converting the empire was a disaster. So we don't look to anything after Constantine. 500s. The Middle Ages have to be leapfrogged back to the early church. Catholic, and I grant you very few Catholics actually understand this because Pope Francis has said the same thing, that Christendom is dead. It's not just the medieval world, but the entire last 1,500 years has been so drained of meaning by the enlightenment, or what many call, picking up on C.S. Lewis's language, the machine, that our neural pathways are so shallowed out, we cannot grasp the historic meaning and richness and depth and breadth and height of the church. And we can't try to revive it. We've got to let it die it returned to the first several centuries and what it actually meant to be the church all of that is basically lost i hate to say it but i'm evangelicals because they are not familiar with the medieval world then they're hardly familiar with the church fathers
0: and mike i, th- I think to maybe maybe wrap it up, what I'm finding helpful in this conversation, and what I've found helpful about frames and even my own in discoveries about church history, is I think what what we said in the last episode, which is, uh, what if if facts don't fit the frame, they bounce off. I think that's from that's from, right. that's from the, yep. the book. And why that's helpful is if. You can't recognize if you're having a conversation with someone who, who maybe is of a different faith tradition and you cannot recognize the frame they're operating in and maybe even you're ignorant to your own frame, th- those conversations are, are ripe for <laughs> frustration, for anger, um, because you're not developing an understanding. You're, you're more trying to make a point that the other person simply will not get to if they're in a different frame. And so I think what what has been valuable for me in understanding these frames is understanding how to, how to converse and just have a conversation that is still enjoyable, polite, kind, loving with other people who in general think of different frames. But I must first at least recognize we're operating different frames and then hopefully discover the frames in which we're, we're operating.
1: Yes, it's uh, well said. Um, and you know, the, uh, so, the puncture point in this would be just to simply ask someone, Have you ever heard of the Middle Ages? And most would say, Yeah. And they'd say, What do you imagine? Yeah. And you say, yeah. so Where'd that phrase Middle Ages come from? And you can see. Now, Pat, having said that, the reason we only have three listeners, and I don't mean this in a snotty way, but, you know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery has infected our world and the enlightenment is what drove that. And chronological snobbery is, uh, we're better than any of those old musty dusty, uh, hidebound ages. So our church is rocking. That's what the church is. We're flourishing. Uh, we're seeing transformation. Um, we don't need to know what happened back then. Um, so you have chronological snobbery at work in all Christians again, and you also to your point have uh, these frames that make christians look at other traditions especially old ones and um, to say well i can't be right or if it's right then i'm wrong i would say the issue isn't right and wrong i would say the issue is the frame I mean to the credit of protestant evangelicals a great zeal for the lord to want to love the lord but the frame is so narrow that it can't take in what constituted a church and what was what made the early church so wondrously beautiful and i say the easiest way to come to see that right away is if you believe your Acts 29 then go to Acts 2 and say so in other words when everybody comes to church on sunday they bring all their possessions and give everything Okay good okay so I mean if that's happening then you're, you're fairly close to too And to uh, my uh, to, to uh, reformed friends, again um, it's it's stunning for some to actually go back and read the first four centuries of church fathers who were unequivocal that there's the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So it's okay then to say, well, I disagree with the church Fathers. I don't see in scripture, and I disagree with the, the church fathers. Okay, but at least you can understand the frame that two thirds of the worldwide church says. Well, you know, I I came out of a tradition that said we believe in the plain meaning of scripture, and there would be a lot of people in two thirds of the worldwide church not influenced by the Enlightenment which does not, which tends to disdain the mystical, in which people say, well, here's the plain meaning. What is the plain meaning of, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you.